Hello, and welcome to the Date Night Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Russell, and with me is my co-host, Ashley Russell. Hey, hey! This is a show where each week, Ashley and I, we talk about a new movie that's playing in theaters, and then we break it down whether we thought it was good or bad, and whether or not it would make for a good date movie. On this episode, we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hollywood! This is the ninth film from writer-director Quentin Tarantino. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, who both share top billing together for the first time. That casting alone should make this something of a must-see for movie fans. The IMDb plot summary for this movie reads, A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. This movie has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it opened this past weekend to about $40 million, which is technically a record for a Tarantino film not adjusted for inflation. When you do adjust for inflation, Inglorious Bastards remains his biggest opening, and Pulp Fiction is still his highest grossing movie. In today's dollars, Pulp Fiction would have made over $200 million, which seems like an impossible number these days for an original independent movie aimed at adults to hit. Yeah, But back in 1994, that's what happened, and it cemented Tarantino as an exciting, cutting-edge voice for moviegoers, and for the last 25 years, he's more or less maintained that brand. Movies like Kill Bill and Django Unchained, they continue to underscore his originality and his influence on cinema. Uh, so let's just let's talk about Tarantino for a little bit here. He's always been something of a controversial figure. The language, like you were talking about, the language and the violence uh, that he uses in his movies, it's always made him an easy target. Uh, going back to the beginning, I've just I've seen I've seen him defend himself a number of times on like morning talk shows. Someone will try and corner him about the violence in his movies until I mean he he's talked about it a bunch. He's had to answer for it. I guess you could say a whole bunch all throughout his career. He's probably tired of talking about it. But it's such a big part of his movie. It is a big part of his movie. That, that's I mean, why that's it keeps getting his brought up. Sick, twisted mind goes sure. there. It's not to say that his life depicts that. I think that's no, just I'm not, maybe I'm not like that. his we're, imagination. We're talking about his movies. Yeah, we're not we're not taking personal shots. We're talking about his movies. Uh, I just I, I just say that just from the beginning with Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Reservoir Dogs. Sure. Yeah, that was his first movie. His very first. Yeah. I guess his first real movie. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody thought that, you know, oh my God, it was something new, something breath. You know, I, I get it. Only because it was new, it was original. Yeah, that was 92. Was, a lot of it was handheld, wasn't it? Some of it. Yeah, it was low budget, for sure. Yeah. It was shot in my old neighborhood, Los Feliz. I mean, I recognize a lot of the spots in there. It was a run-and-gun kind of shoot, but it did have Harvey Keitel on there as a producer, yeah. which helped legitimize that movie, and it made a splash at Sundance. That's where That was the year he also met Robert Rodriguez. But who, who did he have as top billing? In that film, uh, probably Harvey Keitel. Steve Buscemi was in that. Yeah. So he had some name actors that he was able to get. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, that helped for sure. Otherwise, I mean, he was famously just a video store clerk. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, that was that's that was his day job. And uh, yeah, Reservoir Dogs put him on the map. And then Pulp Fiction kind of made him a household name. I was, I was too young to see Pulp Fiction in theaters. But I was old enough to be aware of the impact that it had on pop culture at the time. And it was huge. Was it was it a, a huge good thing. or bad impact on pop culture? Again, it was controversial. And I just, I remember the time there were, yeah, there were conservative groups who were kind of gunning for that film. 
because it was so ultraviolet, because of the language, it, it was very controversial. I mean, it's it's kind of aged out into a classic. He's always courted that controversy. My favorite Tarantino film is Inglorious Bastards. I mean, there's something about killing the Nazis just really does me good inside. That that movie, <laughs> yeah, it's kind and of like scalping a Nazi. Just it, it makes me feel good. It's, it's not supposed to, but it makes me feel good. It started this trend of like revisionist history that he's been doing with also Django Unchained and also with this film. And it's probably his most satisfying there where we get to see Hitler and a bunch of Nazi commanders getting gunned down by Jewish soldiers. I mean, I mean, awesome. great. And that that's that's an example Vindication. of like, yeah, stoking like righteous yeah. bloodlust. And that movie kind of revels in it. But yeah, who doesn't want to see that? I would say in, in what, Hateful Eight. That was his last movie. Yeah, we saw that. I would say that his revenge. Revenge films. Yeah, I mean, the lead actor on, on Hateful Eight, he did some revenging. And it was pretty satisfying. Are you talking about Sam Jackson? Yeah. <laughs> Did you like Hateful Eight? I mean, I honestly, I've seen it a long time ago. Yeah. It's a long movie. I had movie. an intermission in the we, movie. He was, yeah, he was. I can't remember, like, detail by detail. He was weirdly insistent on shooting that and on 70 millimeter and presenting it in 70 millimeter and... He wanted to show it as like a roadshow version with like an overture and an intermission. And, and oh boy, we saw it that way. Uh, well, that was the only way when it was first released. That's the only way you could see it. That's the only way he like he got a bunch of theaters to convert to seventy millimeter for that like limited release. I would I would argue it, it didn't really add much. It was no, still, it was still it just was a, a movie, it just kind of longer. Like, oh my god, like just yeah, still just a movie, but just longer. I'm sure the theaters loved it because then you go and you have a pee, you get a refill, you get some <laughs> some candy, go back to the concessions, yeah. get a get a cocktail. You got to go back, yeah, right? Re, re up, yeah, exactly, because you've already because <laughs> it's so long, you've already eaten all your concessions in the first intermission, and then sure. To keep, you know, you can't smoke in theaters anymore, so you gotta, you gotta keep your hands one, occupied. One nice thing that he's trying to do is he's trying to make going to the movies, you know, seeing something on the big screen, an event, an experience, uh, harkening back to an older tradition of like Cinerama. I, I appreciate that. I, I get it, but yeah. movies aren't like Gone with One anymore. Well, like you're not going to get dressed up in your Sunday's best to go to the theater. Nowadays, a big screen event is typically something we see on like IMAX or on Dolby. Yeah. And uh, and this... sometimes on Netflix in my underwear on my couch. <laughs> sure. Bird yeah. That's... Cage being one of them that... <laughs> with Sandra Bullock. You bet. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, yeah. Cinematic events come in all at all shapes and sizes. <laughs> But I just I thought it was interesting that for, even for this movie, he didn't embrace any of the current large screen formats like IMAX or Dolby. He's very old school, like just uh, defiantly. Do you old think school. he's a f not necessarily afraid to learn new things? But I mean, I, th I think at this point, I, mean, I think that's the, part the, of it. The technology has become so advanced that if you keep yourself in film 
I mean, they're not making the film anymore. Kodak is not making the actual film anymore to do this. I think I think technically they they still are enough filmmakers just for Tarantino because well, enough filmmakers is the only one who does not want to learn digital. I think film uh, enough filmmakers banded together, Tarantino included, to get uh, Kodak to stay open so they could. Still... I mean, is Kodak still even in business <laughs> as 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 a company? That's a good question. But uh, film does still exist for guys like Tarantino and Christopher Nolan. Honestly, but then that means all the theaters have to go back and, and do make sure that they're, you know, dust off the the, they project, did that, the projector. They did that for Hateful Eight. For that road and show they're, they're that we saw. They did that. Well, I mean, the, we saw this digitally. Most people are going to watch this movie digitally. Honestly, shooting film it's a harder discipline. It, it takes a lot more discipline than shooting digital. On digital, you can just let the camera run. I mean, on, on film, it's you have to be a lot more careful and you have to plan a, a lot more. It's uh, I think he's a stubborn dude. <laughs> he's I mean, used I to get getting it, his way and he's had enough success. Scors- like, why change it? Scorsese was the same way and then he went to digital. I mean, Spielberg. I mean, uh, the, the big... Scorsese's working for Netflix. I know. The, <laughs> like, the, Scorsese the, doesn't give a shit. The big <laughs> Wants to make a movie. Just wants to make movies. Exactly. He just wants to make a movie. Yeah. Scorsese's like whoever has the money. He's, he's like <laughs> the that okay. Hollywood elite that doesn't give a shit about anybody else. Are you talking to Tarantino? Yeah, I understand that there is an art to it, but I understand that there is, you know, if the art is becoming obsolete and you have to, you know, keep yourself up to date and learn other technologies and new things to keep yourself relevant. You fucking do it. Honestly, I, I think that really what you're saying applies best to like a guy like Christopher Nolan. Like Christopher Nolan's big breakthrough was after the year 2000. Quentin Tarantino, I mean, at least he goes back to the 90s. He's from like an older school of filmmaking. A guy like Christopher Nolan has no freaking excuse. <laughs> like pick up a digital camera. But Tarantino, he's also talked about retiring. And I think film, and his Tarantino love of film. wants to retire and run his, his theater that's in California, then yeah. let, let him do it. I think Tarantino sees the writing on the wall about how it is all digital. And yeah. his love of film, he feels like there's not, it, it's it's not it's really a his. dying art. It's not really his game. And that's why he, if he's going to make 10 <laughs> films, he wants to make sure those 10 films are going to be shot on film. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I can at least respect that. I respect that more than what. Christopher Nolan does. I mean, I respect that in the sense that he knows when he can maybe step aside and let another filmmaker come and do their thing and and give a new voice. The reason he's given is like, he doesn't want to make old man films and he's, He's realized just watching other people's movies that no, he directors just make feet films. That's it. <laughs> he just needs to make films that are just of women's feet, and you're good. He's already made that. It's called Death Proof and Pulp Fiction <laughs> that, and Jackie Brown. Yeah, Death Proof literally is just an ode to women's feet. Like the first shot is a woman's feet resting on a dashboard, and that's where the credits roll up. <laughs> let's 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 talk about this film specifically. Once upon a time in Hollywood. What what did you think of this film? Oh, man, I was so bored throughout this film. But like, this was all dialogue for me. And, you know, I was so looking forward to this. I know you were looking forward to this. And I feel like you cried at the end of it because you were so disappointed. Because I was so moved. (laughs) No, you were so like disappointed and upset. Because this was such a shit show. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. They're both fantastic actors. They did good for what the script was. Right. 
but I thought it was a dud. Most of Tarantino's films, uh, like I think you were starting to say, they're built on some kind of tension, some sort of uneasy tension. Uh, Hateful Eight is a good example of that. I mean, it's three hours long, but it's it's a whodunit. I mean, there's a mystery involved. There's a murder involved. And he's good at sustaining that kind of uneasy tension all throughout his films. It's yeah. where his bastards is all about that. People yeah. have these long stretches of dialogue, but you know that there's this force off screen that's providing this tension. Yeah. This movie has no tension. It's his first tension-free movie. So let's talk about this. This is the first movie without Weinstein. Yeah, uh, so, that's true. So like, yeah. maybe Weinstein had <laughs> more of a say-so in, in the past you know, 30 years of their relationship in his films and what would be good to go in his films and maybe like a creative outlet and suggestions and it's an interesting point i mean i i believe that tarantino had i'm not saying anything about weinstein hate his guts he needs to rotten rotten jail yeah we're not we're not praising weinstein at all but it I, i believe working with weinstein tarantino had complete freedom to do what he wanted, but... But I think there was probably a creativeness. Tarantino probably went to Weinstein for advice. This movie you feels know. this movie feels like it's from a different filmmaker, honestly. Just scene to scene, moment to moment. It, other than like all the feet, all the women's bare feet that's yeah. in the movie. And there's some extreme violence directed towards women. It, it feels like Tarantino-esque in that sense. But in terms of that uneasy tension and that sort of like crackling dialogue... It's completely lacking. Like his worst instincts are ramped up here. And the things that we enjoy about his work, it, it feels totally erased. And the one major missing ingredient, like you said, is Weinstein. So I don't know what he contributed to the previous eight movies, but something is missing big time here. So um, so this movie starts with uh, a big scene between Leo and Al Pacino. Al Pacino's in this Al Pacino's movie. Al Pacino's rarely in this movie. Maybe he's in the first scene. That's maybe it. Maybe like a week of filming. <laughs> maybe, maybe three days. It's just that one opening scene. Well, he was in the last scene too. I think he or pops like, up. I, I guess briefly towards yeah. the end. But it's really it's in the this... same restaurant. So in the same getup. So they probably did it in one day. He, he wasn't working too hard. No. Here. But it's, I mean, I was excited to see just Al Pacino and Leo DiCaprio doing a scene together under Tarantino's direction. But this scene is mostly just exposition. I know. There's repeated cutaways to all of these in movies that Leo has starred in. We get a lot of clips of stuff like Bounty Law and fucking like the 17 deaths of McClellan. I actually have a list here because we get extensive repeated clips of all these titles throughout the film. It's true. And it's and the game show. It's yeah, there's a game show. Okay, so we get clips from Bounty Law. We yeah. get clips from a show called Tanner. Yep. There's clips from a movie Nebraska Jim. There's a Operation Dynamite. We see clips of at one point. <laughs> well, it's cuz that's where he meets his wife. Sure, that's later in the film. Kill me now, kill me now Ringo said the Gringo. Red bl- <laughs> Red Blood. <laughs> Red blood, red skin, and then the 14 fists. Oh, God. I remember when they said red blood, red skin. I was pretty like, awful. I was, I cringed. I'm pretty like, really? The f- Did they really just do that? The 14 fists of McCluskey. We get a long clip of that one where he's burning Nazis. Oh, it's, that's fun. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, a couple of these clips are fun. Yeah. I mean, this, this that's seven right there. Do we need like seven different uh, <laughs> like reenactments? And it was a game show that's not mentioned. True. Yeah. He's, 
Yeah, Hullabaloo, I yeah. think it's called. Yeah, yeah he, let's not forget that. We see Leo singing briefly, badly. <laughs> not. I will say the this film did not have a good like leading man character. Leo's character was a whiny bitch. He's like Vinny Chase in Entourage. Yeah, that's the amount of depth this guy has. He's just he's an actor. I mean, Tarantino takes so much time setting up where this guy's at in his career. But he takes no time establishing who he actually is. As a person. Yeah, as an actual character. And so he's just in this one note the entire time, which is, I wish my career was better. I wish I was getting movie roles. And I happen to live right next to Roman Polanski. And yeah, when he sees them. (laughs) Like, this is the whole movie. (laughs) When he sees Roman and Sharon, he doesn't even see them as people. He just sees them as like an opportunity. Like, I'm just one pool party away from nabbing that role. He doesn't even like care about them as people. They're just commodities to like leverage him into a better career. He's yeah, he's kind of an But maybe that's how Tarantino looks at film actors. Honestly, I feel like let's be real. I mean, he's getting this from somewhere. Well, no, I feel like it's honestly a pretty realistic depiction of a workaday actor, somebody who's achieved some consistent success, but isn't like a big movie star. I mean, Hollywood is filled with kind of like mid-range actors yeah right that's who this is i feel like it's actually very accurate it's just not interesting it's like it's an interesting context for a character but he goes nowhere there's no arc to this guy and so then we have brad pitt his stunt double slash chauffeur i mean well yeah when he's not his stunt double he's his personal assistant yeah because leo's usually too wasted to drive he's not allowed to drive because he's too wasted (laughs) he had his license taken away yeah yeah, this guy's like, yeah, just kind of a, a wash up. It's it's hard to feel too sad for him. I mean, he's got a nice house in the Hollywood Hills. He's, I mean, I mean, he's like, paying his mortgage okay. Yeah. He's got a nice pool. He, he's, you know, it's it's hard to feel feel too bad for this guy. I, I really don't feel bad for him. No, um, but Brad Pitt has a slightly. I feel bad for Brad Pitt's character having to work with him, having to work for him. I'm not. I, I hate to say this, but being the peon that's on the film sets that are expendable. Well, the like, stunt guy no, who doesn't get much no credit. There's no loyalty unless you are that top of the line A-list actor or the star of the film. Like, there's no loyalty. But it seems like Leo's Rick Dalton has some loyalty to the stunt guy. I mean, they have well, a, yeah. they have I a mean, close bond. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the only reason why the stunt guy is getting any, any work is because of Leo. I think Brad Pitt's character has got some baggage. Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about his baggage. Um, it's alluded to and then shown in a, in a flashback that he this guy most likely murdered his wife i mean they didn't show him actually like hitting her over the head with something it shows the lead up and his yeah. wife is depicted as kind of just this this nagging bitch who kind of had it coming right i mean isn't that kind of how what the movie is saying yeah because she's just kind of nagging him yeah. just kind of like demasculating him and of course she deserves to die for that the implication, yeah, is like this is a Tarantino film. She just, she, yeah, she had it coming. Like, I mean, she, yeah, she's a nagging bitch. She got to get rid of her. And the movie kind of plays it as like a, like a joke. So that's, that's not great. <laughs> n- none of that is great. Uh, I feel like the movie's biggest misstep in terms of not only its characters but also its representation of women is with Sharon Tate yeah who's played by Margot Robbie i mean did we really need like an oscar nominated actress to just wander through this movie in halter tops and skirts <laughs> And, and just dance yeah. around and literally do nothing and proper bare feet up. Yeah. 
what is she doing in this film? <laughs> no, I agreed. I mean, she could have had a much bigger role. Especially considering, and we'll get into it in spoilers, especially considering how this movie... Plays out in the end. Yeah. It's a lot to do. I mean, it's all around her. Supposedly. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it it, it does introduce members of the, the Manson, Manson cult. Yeah. Uh, Charles Manson himself makes a little cameo in this film for one scene. And yeah, they the Manson cult factors into the climax. But Sharon Tate, she gets one major scene where she's just going to the movies. <laughs> just watching herself. Yeah, she went to like undercover or not undercover because she literally tells the she people. She uses that, her name. I, I am in the film. She uses your name to get a free ticket. I'm the klutz. This scene takes like thirty minutes. It feels. Like. Oh my god! Like, there was a big around. thing about this scene. Like they don't even like they put use... her face on the the film. Like they use the literally the old Sharon Tate films. I mentioned these seven in movie recreations that Tarantino does for Leo. They can't do one for yes. Sharon Tate. Well, what is happening? Exactly, what Leo. Is happening? Is, his face is put on all these other actors, and going back and well, in the Great Escape, they superimpose like, his come face. Come on, which is all the recreations, all the Western recreations. You know, the uh, the Bounty Law. I mean, the movie opens with Leo. You know, black and white on the set of this cowboy Western. It devotes so much energy to these recreations of old shows and films. But when Margot Robbie is watching herself on screen, Which it looks nothing, nothing like, like her. Nothing like her at all. Nothing. Why? Why? <laughs> like, I mean, like, get rid of three of those re- Leo reenactments and give her this one. Yeah. Maybe. I feel like for the first, I, I heard a lot of reports of like people just passing out during the first hour of this movie. And this is so dull. Well, a good 40% of this movie feels like it's just Brad Pitt driving around in a car. Picking up <laughs> hippie girls. I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example. Earlier on in the film, he drops Leo off. Yep. Who's, I guess, drunk or on his way to like about to get drunk or something. And we follow what feels like in real time as Brad Pitt drives in his car across town. Drives behind this drive-in movie theater. Where he lives in a trailer. Right. It just, I mean, like, we're riding with, he takes the exit. Like, we don't need all this. (laughs) Just show, just show him entering his trailer with his dog. How many close-ups of dog food do we get in this movie? Oh, my God. We get a lot of close-ups of Yeah, like, like, why why are we getting so many dog food close-ups? The dog was pretty awesome, though. I'll tell you, there's an element of this film where it felt like Tarantino's trolling us to a degree. I mean, first there's the foot fetish thing, which is so obvious. It's The actresses are probably happy to have their bare feet in a Tarantino movie. I mean, seriously, yeah, come If on. you're a young actress, yeah, I guess but that's what you But clean your feet. Marco Robbie, clean your feet. But no, part of this feels like it's it's trolling the audience in the sense that like, oh, hey, we got two of the biggest like white male movie stars on the planet, and you want to see them do stuff together, right? Well, fuck you. They're just going to sit around and watch TV together. <laughs> there was really no African Americans in this movie. None whatsoever. Yeah, there, none, there was. None whatsoever. I mean, this was not a diverse film. No, at all. Like it was all white folk. Sure. I mean that's. I mean they, that that is what it is. I mean, I've less a problem with that and more just a problem with. That the movie kind of sucked. 
yeah <laughs> that the script was weak it's, it's yeah there's no story that they could have used done so much with brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio in their first film together yeah they could have done so much more literally their scenes than, than this their scenes together they're either just driving around in a car together or they're sitting around on a couch watching tv it's one of many scenes of like in movies that they're watching together the last time I felt trolled like this was The Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, no. That movie, it's like, oh, you want to see Luke Skywalker leave this island? Yeah. Well, fuck you. He's just going to stay here and milk an alien tit and die of exhaustion. I don't like being <laughs> trolled when I'm watching like a big budget movie. <laughs> like I was so looking forward to this because there's not many. It's been a rough summer original films that are getting this kind of budget and i think you were looking forward to it too i mean you were so excited i assume because it's a tarantino film this was going to be the movie of the summer hands down i assumed it was going to be the movie of the year considering tarantino's involvement and the cast i'm a tarantino fan through and through you I are mean, t- I- you have a tarantino specific shelf <laughs> Movie shelf. We got we got like a steelbook of Grindhouse and yeah. Django Unchained. I saw Grindhouse twice in theaters. You know, people. I remember people complaining about Death Proof. Like, oh, it's just you know scenes, uh, boring scenes of these girls talking, and just like too much of that. But I enjoyed it. I mean, it's at least he gives those girls characters yeah. to play, and there's some genuine tension and excitement that goes on in that movie. All that is missing here. So, yeah, sitting in this theater, assuming like I'm I'm in store for the best movie of the year, hands yeah, down. Yeah, no, you're like, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a like fucking Oscar, shit show. <laughs> you know, best director type film, and it just was not. I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of the year I'd enjoy Tim Burton's Dumbo more than a movie with Tarantino and Brad oh, Pitt. Dumbo didn't get. And fucking Leo DiCaprio. Oh, that's so depressing. I, I would have said, like, what kind of crazy world are we talking about? But that's kind of how this year is shaken out. This is another disappointment this summer. I also think Hollywood really placates to Tarantino. The critics, there was a, the studio. There was, a, there was a bidding war for this film. And I don't mean like a Sundance bidding war, like this little indie. I mean, all the Hollywood studios fought for this movie. They yeah. wanted to be in the Tarantino business. And it couldn't have been the script. <laughs> it's the name Tarantino. It's the name Tarantino, yeah. Because there's nothing to this script. And it took him five years to write this script. Like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Five years, Tarantino. Come on now. It feels like the work. You've lost it. You've lost your creative yeah. it, mojo. It feels like the work of a man who, who's lost his way creatively. <laughs> and I hate I hate saying that. Because, again, I got steel books of this man's work on my shelf. I, I usually see his movies twice in the theater. I go back. You do. I go back a second time. I love them. You saw Eight, Hateful Eight a couple times. In I saw theater. I saw it twice. Yeah. I, I I enjoy his movies, uh, and Hateful Eight is, uh, I mean, I'll admit one of his weakest films. But there's still you, can, I can deal with his indulgences because I know that there are certain moments of brilliance that you only get in a Tarantino film, and Hateful Eight fit that for me. This movie doesn't. It's it's really boring, and then it gets it becomes like a slapstick, gory cartoon. Yeah, at the end, and that's and I hear a lot of people saying that was the big payoff for me. That was my favorite scene, which I sort of understand because that's when something finally happens. Well, yeah, I get it. I mean, I was rooting for it, yeah. but then at the same time, there's some, I think there's you some troubling me, there's some you, troubling shit. Yeah, that happens. I was rooting for it. I'm like, yeah, get it, get it, get it. Sure, get her. Everyone was, yeah. But then it's like. 
okay, you got her. Yeah, she's dead. <laughs> like, like, she's, okay. She's been dead. Yeah. She's, Way to go. Why don't we, yeah, why don't we take a break? Let's do that. And uh, yeah, when we come back, we'll, we'll get into some spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> All right, we're back and we're going to get into the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is where I guess the big spoilers are. This is where he does most of his re- revisionist kind of Tarantinoing. <laughs> yes. The movie doesn't play historically accurate, we'll say. And so basically what happens, we've got the the three Manson murderers. One of them is named Tex. We don't get the names of the two females, but it's Tex and two women. I guess technically uh, from- three women, one one girl chickens out. Yeah. And she splits. They end up at Leo's home, but they, they don't go to the Tates. They don't go to the Polanskis. Yeah. They end up at Leo's, and there is a very funny exchange. Yeah. Where Leo is cursing them out. And he is drunk. He's got his picture it's of margaritas. Funny. It's funny. That's, and he is like, the, what the, y'all doing? Uh, he's, he's got that he's like, southern get, accent. Get the F out yeah. of here, like you, you damn hippies. It is funny. That's what I'm talking about. Like The whole time, I was thinking, like, are they going to murder him like right here in the street? That's what I'm talking about with like the comedic tension that Tarantino's good for. That scene is a good example of it. There's some tension there, and it's funny. And but lo and behold, they didn't know that Brad Pitt was like a former military man. Yeah, Brad like, Pitt's all around badass. Yeah, he's a no holds barred. Like, I mean, I think there was a funny scene of him and Bruce Lee. Yeah, I want I, I want to talk about that. This movie, uh, it, it kind of poses Bruce Lee as like a punk bitch. Kind of, yeah. As a whiny, prima donna punk bitch. And um, look, years ago, I I worked for Fred Weintraub, who was the producer on Enter the Dragon. And Fred Weintraub, he's largely credited as being the guy who introduced Bruce Lee to American audiences. Bruce Lee tragically died at 33. But his influence and his legacy uh, continue to live on. Yeah. He deserved better than just being here to prop up this wife-murdering, washed-up stuntman. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I'm kind of biased, because I I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for just Enter the Dragon and just Bruce Lee's legacy. His life was cut short. He, he deserved better treatment than this, as did Sharon Tate, as did fucking everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's if anyone like deserved to be like shit on, how about Roman Polanski? How about Charles Manson? No, he's, I mean, he like... just gets a little mysterious cameo. Yeah. So yeah, so let's let's get into it. The um these these cultists, you know, after they have that little encounter with Leo, they end up inside his home where Brad Pitt is there. And Brad Pitt, he's tripping on acid. He's he smoked an acid laced cigarette. So there was that's... only a quarter, by the way, guys. <laughs> Back then. Better times, right? I mean seriously. Damn. <laughs> so he's tripping balls and these crazed cultists come into his come into the home and they're brandishing knives and he he sticks his dog on them brandy the brandy the dog yeah and i, I think brandy uh, attacks the guy's nuts that guy gets it in the nuts oh yeah that uh, was kind of refreshing i'm not even sure how that guy dies he just he bleeds out or something well yeah the dog just attacks. dog just kills him yeah attacks he's him. just in the corner being attacked by the dog that dog eventually then goes to one of the women yeah and attacks her viciously and, and then that woman she's grabbed by brad pitt and he beats her head repeatedly into a telephone and then into a coffee table yeah about 20 times like a marble 
coffee table. Not like the wooden stuff you get from Ikea now. No, this, is, this was like a hardened... This is like a small... I mean, she's about half the size of yeah. Brad Pitt. And he's he's breaking furniture with her face, yeah. pretty much. And it's about... Because it's Tarantino, each whack is close up. It's The sound effect is ramped up. It's really ultra-violent. I heard someone describe it as like Home Alone. <laughs> it's it's kind of like... It's kind of like the man... worse than Home Alone. It's good... <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Home Alone was pretty violent, but it's kind of like the Manson family meets Home Alone. Yeah, a little bit is the scenario okay. here. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, I get that. But yeah, and it's played for laughs. Rated Just, R. Yeah, rated R. Home Alone <laughs> meets the Manson family, and instead of Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, we have two young women. Yeah. who are being just brutalized. Who and, are in a cult, right? <laughs> and so yeah, this woman, she's dead after that after the, yeah. t- the 20 yeah. i think she was dead maybe after the first one yeah and he rams her face and this into... scene is played for laughs because it's so over the top yeah. you know at I, first i was like yeah you know he's got it we're rooting for these yeah. cultists to get it in some way i mean i understand that and then the the second girl i, I just i remember her at one point like screaming hysterically and like running through a pane of glass yeah it's like kabuki theater at this point. Like, it's so over the top. <laughs> yeah. But she, yeah, she crashes through, like, a pane of glass, and she finally gets Leo's attention. Well, because I think she's got the gun. So there's, she's they've, bleeding. They've got one gun. She's bleeding or something. And two knives, yeah. And she's got the gun and going she, towards Leo. She, Leo's in the pool, like, unaware of everything got, that's going on. on. He's yeah. got headphones going on. He's trying to memorize lines. I don't know what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> she ends up in the pool. She falls into the pool. And he, he gets his flamethrower. We've established that he kept a prop from one of his movies, which is a flame, a working flamethrower. I mean, they wouldn't allow actors no, to do that No, of nowadays. course not. Of course not. But whatever. It's I mean, this woman has to die the worst way possible. So he he uses his flamethrower on her, and she burns alive. Yeah. And that, that again, is kind of played for, like, crowd-pleasing laughs. Yeah. And that's that's the the climax. That well, that's the big that, like yeah, high point of the movie. That's the climax, and then at the end, you see, you know, the the cops and everybody come in. You know, Brad Pitt's going to the hospital because he's a little shook up. I think he's stabbed in the hip or something like that. It's a little shaken up, poor guy. Yeah, stabbed in the hip, <laughs> poor guy. And then Sharon Tate's buddy. Jay Sebring, yeah, played by Emil Hirsch, yeah, comes who died in real life. He was part of the Manson, yes, yes, yes. yes. So did Abby, five, Abigail Folger. Five people, including yeah. her unborn child. Uh, I feel bad for anyone who watches this movie who isn't aware that Sharon Tate did actually die in real life. Yeah, yes. along with along with her unborn child. Uh, watching this movie, uh, unaware of history, you would have no clue. Yeah, I actually thought, you know, once the gates kind of open. Which does feel like this like symbolic visual of like yeah. the gates finally being open to him. And they're like, Hey, you know, um, we have uh, we have some guests over. You know, why don't you come up and, and meet them? I thought briefly for a minute, okay, like this is where Sharon Tate is gonna get murdered. <laughs> like the guests Yeah. This is where the actual like Manson murder is going to happen. I couldn't believe that the movie was gonna cop out on depicting Sharon Tate's actual fate. Because by taking that out, what is this movie actually about? Yeah. It's about nothing. It's it's really about nothing. It's about a it's whiny a, actor. It's about an actor. Who happens to who live a break. right next to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate and happened to be a target of Charles Manson. But then they defeat Charles Manson's 
cult. It's, it's a yeah. It's about an actor who you know through a twist of fate he finally gets his his potential. Yeah, big with, break with Roman Polanski. Yeah, good good for him. The movie almost seems to be saying like if only those damn Manson murderers had come across a macho dude like Cliff Booth. Yeah, none of this would have happened. The movie is uh, hollow uh, as a result because it's what this could have been about. What I thought it was going to be about is how like. You know, the summer of love, the summer of innocence came to a crashing halt. You know, one bloody night. Yeah. That, that's I a mean, movie about something. To be that's honest, something. But, but to be honest with you, Patrick, like... I don't want to watch the, the Manson murders when, recreated. When the trailers happen, and I, I turn to you every single time, like, what is this movie about? Like, I just don't understand. Like, there's I thought the nothing trailers, to this movie. I, I just didn't get it. I thought the trailers were selling a character study that took place in a particular place and time with the Manson cult as um, kind of like a background specter. Like at some point, these, you know, these fictional characters are going to cross paths with history. I thought that's what it was selling. A character piece uh, where kind of fact and fiction collide. That would be great in theory, but these characters suck. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to root for anybody. The most interesting character is Sharon Tate. Yeah, I would argue. And I was saying to this to you earlier, Sharon Tate, you know, during her time in Hollywood, you know, of course, her life was cut tragically short. But during her time, she, you know, she was a Playboy model. She was heavily objectified through print and media at the time. I mean, that's what she was hired for. And so this movie was a chance to actually humanize her. Give her a voice. Yeah, actually, like, provide moviegoers with her perspective. There was an opportunity here, and this movie just isn't interested in it. She really just, she's she's just a figure of innocence who just kind of, like, wafts in the breeze in the background. Yeah. And it's, it's insulting. It devalues the film. Without that, this movie has, like, literally no value. So this is what I'm saying, like Hollywood and everybody like really like just kisses Tarantino's feet, even though this work was a kind of <laughs> kisses his feet. Yeah, I got in. I got into it like with someone on Twitter. They're like, you know, when I expressed concern that like, why does this movie reserve its most brutal deaths for like two unnamed women? Uh, you know, one dude was like, would you be talking about this if it was, you know, like a woman bashing a man's face? <laughs> you know, Atomic my re- blonde. My. But- <laughs> I mean, my my response is like, yeah, like the level of violence in that particular scene is sadistic no matter like what the gender is. It's gleeful and it's over the top in that specific Tarantino way. And in this movie, the bloodlust feels misdirected. It's made me just kind of like reevaluate his movies, his past films to a degree. I I mean, I just feel like he's just, he lost his muster for film. It's, I mean, it's a shame because he's, I mean, he's a guy like who seems pretty obsessed about his own legacy. He's got one more to go, so he can retire after one more. Do not retire after this flop. Do you think that it's going to get its money back? That's a good question. I mean, it, it was expensive. I mean, it opened okay. $40 million is a good opening. Um, but it costs how much? It costs about $90 million. And then another ninety or hundred to market, so it's. And they put that shit, that trailer on before every single movie we have seen in the past four months. It's going to have to do well overseas to make its money back, and that's why. That's why studios are giving up on big budget original films because the economics don't work out. You know, like a forty million opening, 
is good, but it's not going to keep the lights on in the long run because of what it takes to market a movie like this. You know, it's got to be big. But audiences aren't asking for a hundred million dollar travelogue where people drive around. I mean, (laughs) audiences are asking for give us a 40 million, 50 million dollar movie that would take less time to get your money back. And give that opportunity to actors that haven't been discovered yet. I mean, have that one name talent in there. But now these name talent folks, they want $20, $30 million just to be a part of your film. And that's where the budget's going. That's where this budget went. Yeah, it went to, I would imagine it mainly went to Leo. <laughs> a big chunk of it went to Leo, Well, yeah, because Brad Pitt hasn't really... He hasn't been on screen since Allied. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, Leo also, I mean, The Revenant was his last movie. But that was actually a hit. Um, I mean, he did win the Oscar for that, so he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why, yeah, Leo is Leo's price. I would imagine is probably higher than Brad Pitt's. But Brad Pitt is is doing good work here. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you when I really just when it kind of sank into me that this was I was watching Tarantino's worst film, his most boring film. There's this whole midsection where we see Leo as a cowboy. Like trying to get his shit together on set, it goes on for like forty minutes. It does. It starts with like with his hit, little co-star. It starts with him talking with this co-star. We see him talking with Timothy Oliphant. We see him in his trailer, like melting down. That's probably the best moment. Like, why are we seeing this entire western being recreated? Tarantino wants to do a western. He loves his westerns. He's obsessed with them and wants to put them in his movies. That's all I can say. That scene goes on so long and it doesn't lead anywhere, does it? No, it does not. That was For me, that was a very tedious scene because it, it just keeps going and going. It adds zero value to the film. And the, it's just kind of like, oh my God. Like The whole movie is like that. It's just stroke his ego. The whole movie is like that. Like these big lengthy scenes that just go nowhere. They lead nowhere interesting. And then they just end. And then... Then it's like, what's the point of it? The movie feels terribly edited. It's the first Tarantino movie I've seen where it's like, why why is it edited like this? It's either like awkward cross-cutting or just scenes of people driving that should be cut, clearly. Yeah. It's very poorly paced and didn't edited. He have, didn't he have uh, somebody that he worked with for years and years and years that was his editor? Sally Menke. She died. The last movie he made with her was Inglorious Bastards. Hmm, that could be different. I mean, different editor as well as a different producer. I mean, that could change. I a definitely, lot. definitely felt it on this movie. But maybe a different writer would have been great. I, mean, I didn't have a problem. <laughs> I didn't have a problem with the editing, really, and hatefully or Django Unchained. So I, I don't know how this movie went off the rails <laughs> like it did. But I feel like you maybe know, it's because it's just a poorly written script. There are people claiming this movie's brilliant, and it's among... It's, Maybe we didn't get it. I it's, mean, Tar- it's Tarantino's warmest film and his most personal yeah. and one of his best. That, that's I what mean, I'm hearing people Patrick, claim. Patrick, maybe we didn't get it. I mean, maybe we're... There's nothing to get. It's not, I, a, it's not about anything. <laughs> it's, it's about dudes driving in cars, punching women. <laughs> it's, it's about word. feet. It's about fucking feet. I'll tell you a, a better movie that this reminded me of was a movie we saw a few years ago called The Nice Guys. That starred Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. Uh, it took place in like 1970s Los Angeles. I'll tell you, that, that movie was a flop, unfortunately, but it had two big advantages over this one, which is a plot line and interesting characters. 
I actually did like that movie though. It had, had yeah. so, it just again, it had a plot and it had characters. So like whatever your mileage is with it, it at least had those two things. Yeah. This movie is lacking big time. I'll say this like the two characters in this world that I wouldn't have minded seeing getting their faces bashed in 20 times would have been Charles Manson. Yeah, that would have been a good one. That, that's what, yeah, that's what works so well with Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. Like, you're rooting for, like, racist plantation owners yeah. to be taken down in vicious ways. You're rooting for Hitler to get gunned down by Jewish soldiers. Yeah. Absolutely. In this movie, if he had given Charles Manson the Tarantino treatment, I would have been, that, then yeah. I would have been hooting and hollering. Yeah. Or Polanski. <laughs> <laughs> well, back then, that Plansky wasn't a rapist. He definitely was. It, it just wasn't a problem with everyone back then. So, so did you think this was a good date night movie? No, no, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Again, this movie, yeah, it's it's nothing but people driving around in cars <laughs> until it climaxes with the women getting bashed getting in bashed the face. In. Uh, so no, Devin, this movie's toxic. But no, here's, I agree with you. Here's not a, better, a date night movie, people. Here's a better question: Are any of Tarantino movies date night material? I would argue some of them are. Yeah, I think his best movies, stuff like Inglorious Bastards, Django, or Jackie Brown, they do fit the bill for well, good date night. They, they give they give good conversation. Yeah. afterwards they give and, you something to talk yeah. about, and they generate some excitement. Yeah, they're, they're actually exciting to watch. This movie uh, fails on those counts. So what what grade would you give it? I mean, I I hated it. So I'm going to give it a D. (laughs) And the only reason why I'm not giving it an F is because it was original. Yeah. Such a bad summer. We're going to do an episode later where we just kind of recap this summer, which has felt particularly bleak. Yeah. And we're going to talk the highs and the lows. And um, But I'll tell you what, the Netflix movies are amazing. You're enjoying Netflix? Yeah. I mean... Should theaters just close it up? <laughs> yep. I'll tell you, yeah, like I've been complaining about superhero movies so much and just like give me original stuff. And then I see this and I mean, I'll take a good superhero movie <laughs> over like the worst Quentin Tarantino movie. So yeah, for me as a Quentin Tarantino movie, it, this is an F. Yeah. I don't know how to grade this objectively. I feel like I have to see it again to like grade this beyond that because like it feels like it's one of Leo's worst. I think the only movie I can think of that Leo's made worse than this is Jay Edgar. No. Yeah. <laughs> we saw that one. N- not a good date movie. Um, he made Jay Edgar. And you know, as a female, you know, you're looking for like you got two of the hottest actors out there. You got Leonardo DiCaprio and you got Brad Pitt. Like you're <laughs> wanting this to be like Brad Pitt is in good form here. Yeah, I mean, he's he's doing his thing. Brad Pitt reminds you what a good movie star he, yeah. he is. This is actually this is why it's hard to write it off. This is one of Brad Pitt's best roles, his best performances, I think. I think. <laughs> no, I don't agree with you on that one. You don't think so? Mm. I thought he was pretty strong in this. He was. He was good. He, he was like one of the highlights. Best. I mean, he's done a lot of great stuff. He has, yeah. In my I, opinion, absolutely. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is is done. He's done much better. The, the only uh, thing I can give this movie, it's better than J. Edgar. <laughs> it's I, yeah. out of Leonardo's full on filmography. Yeah. Okay, it's so disappointing. Yeah. That's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. You can find more episodes at anchor.fm slash movie date night, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're on Twitter at Date Night Movie Podcast, and you can also email us at date night movie podcast at gmail.com. 
Until next time, I'm Patrick. And I'm Ashley. Thanks for listening. See ya.